Hi everyone, this is Jem calling from the future. After we'd recorded the show, we thought that we should probably give a spoiler warning because there are a lot of films, books, movies, some of which we just casually refer to some of the key themes of, some of which we do really give away key elements of the plot. I think it would take too long to explain in detail how much we spoil of each text. So I'm really just going to go through the list of texts that we refer to in the show. Some of the references to which do include spoilers. But here's the list quite quickly. It's not in chronological order with reference to the order we did them in the show. It's just quite random. Uh, anyway, here's the list. A movie called The Woman in Black. Uh, the general work of H.P. Lovecraft. Joseph Conrad's novella Heart of Darkness. Sigmund Freud's essay The Uncanny. Definitely gave away the end there. Horace Walpole's novel The Castle of Otranto. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Bram Stoker's Dracula. H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds. The film White Zombie. The film Night of the Living Dead. Uh, the film Dawn of the Dead. Stephen King's non-fiction book on writing, A Memoir of the Craft, the 1950s film Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the early 80s film Poltergeist, and the classic clasher film Halloween. Uh, we also mentioned the Roman Polanski film Rosemary's Baby, and very definitely spoiled that one. We talked about the more recent film Get Out. We talked a little bit about stuff that happens in that that you wouldn't know from the general publicity. We referred to the general setting and themes of 28 Days Later and Children of Men and the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once. And finally, we referred to the uh, brilliant Sweeney-themed horror role-playing game that Kira and I are lucky enough to be playing in at the moment, run by our very clever friend Vaughan. Uh, shout out to Vaughan. But the only person who knows what's happening in that is Vaughan, so we can't have spoiled that for anybody. This is Hello and welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. I'm Jeremy Gilbert and I'm here as usual with my friends Nadia Idle. Hello. And Keir Milburn. Hello. And today we are talking about horror. So this is coming straight after us doing an episode about magic. So why are we doing this? Have we become goths? What's the story? <laughs> I don't think we have become goths. Let's work that out later. We wanted to do a, a, an episode on horror partly because this is Halloween season, the traditional time for all things spooky and horrific. Um, so it's a good excuse, I think, to examine the, the topic of horror and perhaps get into the relationship between the, the dominant monsters or the dominant forms of, of horror fiction, horror fiction and, and, and horror films. You know, it's almost a cliche that the monsters that emerge at a particular time reflect the fears and anxieties of that time. And perhaps more specifically, they reflect the fears and anxieties of the audience of that particular story or, or film. Uh, because especially when we get into the early parts of horror, the early roots of horror, the, you know, the gothic novels, etc., that had a very specific audience who were only a particular part of um, society. So, uh, yeah, that's sort of what, what, what we're interested in. And I think it's, it'd be an interesting a bit later if we did a sort of bestiary of horror and try to think through how it relates, not just to the sort of social, political, economic situation at the time, but also how that might relate to the psychological to some degree. 
Yeah, I love this topic. Thanks for suggesting it, Kia. Um, I guess I've got a slightly different in to this, uh, which is I'm mostly interested in exploring what it is that horror actually does for people. Why is that affect chaste in a sense? And like you said, why it's related to the time, if it's related to the times we live in and what it says politically and economically and culturally, I guess. And so I, I generally, as I think I've mentioned before on this show, I don't like to brand people with you know a, a certain fixed identity. But I do wonder, having thought about this, whether there is a character type that is attracted to, to, to horror stories, kind of listening to them, reading them and, and, and watching them, and whether, in a sense, you have to have some kind of a, a particular emotional landscape to enjoy that. Because I'm fascinated with the idea that anyone would like to seek out being horrified or frightened. And I cannot empathize with of that at all. So I'm interested in things like what makes people able to suspend disbelief in that way and and whether in, in fact it relates to you know the security that they experience in their real lives like is it and it, it also if it's gender does it relate to how you perceive threat of you know violence or fright or uh, invasion or those other types of ways that I guess somebody can be horrified. And I think we'll talk a bit more about this and the distinctions perhaps as as we go through the show. But I don't think it's the same as thrill, for example. Like I'm in some ways an adrenaline junkie. Like, you know, I like roller coasters and stuff like that, but I hate horror. And I'm I'm still haunted by the ones that I watched when I was 13. It's also, I I, uh, I think, quite different to macabre, which is its own genre, which I which I really love and enjoy. So yeah, I'm interested in 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 what makes people uh, want to be scared in that way. That's that's the number of my area of interest. Yeah, I'm really interested in that question as well, actually. And I'm also, I'm a little bit sceptical about the idea that what people are experiencing when they're enjoying horror fiction in any form is actually fear. I, I sort of suspect it's something else that might be physically or emotionally related to fear, but also involves not actually having any, anything to be afraid of. So I'm not, I'm not sure. So I'm interested in teasing it out. Mm-hmm. And I'm also interested in the way in which it's such a blurry category horror as a sort of genre designation, at least. Because, you know, when I was a kid, there was a, you got all these books that was advertised themselves as books of ghost stories. And the ghost story is like a specific genre. And I'm still very fond of like the Edwardian ghost story. But I'm not sure if that's horror. I was actually, I haven't had time to investigate this very thoroughly, but I found it very difficult. I haven't been able to track down like when the specific term horror starts getting used. I mean, the standard accounts, narrative accounts of, or where does this genre come from, will always point you back either to Gothic literature of the mid 18th century or to classical tales about in ancient Greece and Rome about sort of reanimated dead people and ghosts and things and witches but when that term actually starts being used i'm not sure and like in my mind like horror proper sort of i mean it's basically what it refers to is is the output of stephen king and anything that's very closely related to that and then the further you get away from that the more it blends into like weird fiction or other potential designations so I guess to be honest, I'm always quite—I am quite turned off by the term horror. I've never really liked it that much as a term, and of all those areas, I'm least interested in the ones that are most obviously, definitely designatable as horror. But then that might just be a quirk of mine, because, like you know, I, 
I do really enjoy a lot of creepy supernatural fiction. And I sort of love, you know, I love role-playing games where you're getting scared and your characters are going mad and dying. Like, we love playing those games. Probably more than I like watching films about it or reading about it. Because you two were declaring that you didn't particularly like horror, I should declare that I, I absolutely love horror. <laughs> not all horror, actually, not all horror. Uh, no, no, because I, I do enjoy, me, me and Jeremy play a, a role-playing game, which is sort, sort oh, of... Oh, you've not cult. mentioned that before. You guys play role-playing <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, we, we, keep it, we keep it under our hats, close to our chest. So it's a Call of Cthulhu game set set in the sort of Sweeney 1970s London setting. And the horror bits are great. Like I really, really enjoy playing them. But I, I enjoy watching horror films, but not all horror films. And I think that is a way into into trying to disambiguate or, or to break up this idea of like what is what are people after? Does horror try to horrify you or is it just misnamed and it covers a, a whole load of of different different things? Because if we think about the sort of ghost stories that Jen was just talking about, you know, perhaps M.R. James and these sorts of ghost stories, I don't think they are trying to horrify you. That perhaps there's a moments of like a little bit of shock and stuff. They're more trying to provoke this sort of sense of creeping dread, if you know what I mean, that something's not quite right. And that, that sort of knocks you off kilter a bit. And there's lots of films like that, I think, that, that try to provoke that sort of thing. When my daughter May was young, probably like 12-ish, so just about the time that you got put off horror, I, I decided to give her an education in horror films. So we did a sort of chronological... Psycho. <laughs> we didn't get to Psycho, no. But just, but just I'm going to interrupt you just to get an understanding of what you initially said when you started this segment, because this is a thing that I struggle with. So you just said, I wanted to give my daughter May an education in. And the thing that I find difficult to grasp with that is is the academic distancing of like this is a genre let's look at it from the outside whereas the whole point of the genre is to give you that affect where you are actually scared or jumpy or you know you've got that creeping dread and I just think mm. why do you want to put someone you love through that <laughs> that's what I don't get once again it's just bad parenting but um <laughs> well no because she was sort of interested in it and we watched a documentary which listed a load of films we wrote them all down and said well we watch these in order and, and so like she loved it but it's also like genres are genres they've got certain tropes etc that you learn and then they get played with so you do you can sort of learn this sort of stuff and I, th I, I do think that that affective nature of horror films the sort of different bodily corporeal feelings that, that are sort of inculcated in it the way I, I like to think of it is that they can be used they can get you out of your normal state sort of physically and they can be used to introduce interesting ideas now lots of horror doesn't do that so about the same time I was giving May this education in horror I took her and some friends to go and see a film called The Woman in Black basically all it was was jump scare after jump scare you know a fake jump scare creepy music leading up to Nothing leading up to nothing, and then there'd be a ghost's face, and that's all it was. But I was in this cinema with like loads of young girls just screaming every time, and I just I was completely alienated from the film and just absolutely laughing at all of these young girls screaming their heads off. Well, I, I just want to say that like the horror films I don't like are that what what people call torture torture porn or so saw and the the, the saw series of films. Are, one of them where it's, you know, people are trapped and they have to do horrific things. You know, they've got to saw their own leg off to get out of this trap and all of this sort of stuff. It just leaves me cold, basically. I don't want, you know, I'm just not interested in that. And I'm much more interested in films which disorientate your body and then introduce ideas and probably analogies to everyday life that relate to the, the sort of feeling that the, 
the horror aspects have, have have formed in your body. That's what I really after when I go to a to watch a horror yeah, film. Who wants their body disoriented? But then I like going on <laughs> roller coasters. So I just yeah, exactly. Just, I don't know. Like you saying that, I'm just like, oh, who wants that? It's so weird. <laughs> Obviously, quite a lot of people in the West, at least. And I mean, you know, horror horror is not something that exists only in the West. Of course, we're going to mostly be talking about the cultural examples are you know U U UK and US. I think. I mean, obviously, there is a lot of East Asian horror in cultural, you know, films and and writing as well. Okay, so I want to play Halloween by the Dave Matthews Band. I'm a massive fan of the Dave Matthews Band. Um, I partly want to play it because I really like the use of the violins and the vocals, which kind of switch between a folky vocal and then quite a scary deep voice, but also because the... The, the song was written because of Dave Matthews' frustration over his girlfriend not wanting to marry him three times. It's actually quite misogynistic, the lyrics. Um, and in that way, it's very scary. <laughs> <laughs> I read this paper basically in the American Journal of Economics and Sociology by this guy, Paul Santilli, from about 15 years ago. And I thought it was interesting that he makes this, this distinction between horror as the, the human exposed to, to naked fact of being, which I had to think about for a while. And he makes this kind of link to, to Heidegger's work on anxiety, which I thought was was interesting. But but then he goes on to do this this, this distinction between horror and evil as evil being defined like within a cultural matrix but horror as the undefined other of a culture so it's like horror is the it it it, it brings to light the the sickening presence of being as being and I just thought that was interesting in a way to think about it as a distinction from evil because I do think it is completely different this idea of horror as being a kind of reaction to the sort of inescapable ontological reality of being. And I mean, it crops up in a number of different theoretical registers. A lot of um, philosophical, theoretical, academic account, attempts to account for horror as a genre will go to various kinds of psychoanalysis. And the, the tradition of, sort of Freudian and Lacanian psychoanalysis is always looking at the ways in which certain aspects of physical, biological reality or of our mental lives become things that we have to sort of repress or not fully confront the, re the reality of or the reality of our lack of control over. And that is sort of one version of that. And then there's also uh, philosophers who are very interested in the idea that the idea of confronting the indifference of the cosmos and of you know the physical universe to human intentions or desires or agencies is something philosophically necessary, but also incredibly emotionally difficult for people to do. And quite often people who are interested in that idea are also very interested in the idea that certain kinds of horror, some sort of dramatise the idea, this idea of confronting a completely indifferent universe. Arguably that's one of the strands of horror fiction that's been most 
drawn upon by sort of philosophers and theorists, the sort of cos- the cosmic horror, which is associated mm. associated with uh, the writings of people like H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah, but like indifference is completely. You don't. There's no. There's no need for any concept of evil in that. This is the thing. I mean, Lovecraft. I mean, Lovecraft is a, is this really key figure. Who, if you're talking about the history of horror fiction, I mean, the general consensus today in English is that Lovecraft is sort of the key figure in twentieth, the evolution of twentieth century horror fiction. He's this very odd figure. You know, he had some very problematic kind of views uh, politically. Uh, he was writing. Well, he, was a, he was a died in a wall racist. <laughs> yeah, he that. was um, writing in the twenties and thirties, and he and he wrote these stories. In most of which, at least, there's this imagined cosmology according to which actually the universe is ruled by these bizarre supernatural entities who are completely indifferent to human existence. And as far as they could be classified as good or evil, you know, in human terms, they're they're completely evil and they're just completely self-interested and they would just see human beings as sort of prey or something they, they don't care about. And you know this cosmology is only ever sort of hinted at and there's some sense that you know there are some people who end up making contact with these entities and worshipping them and and trying to sort of bring about the end of the conditions which make human civilization possible because somehow that will you know give them something they want and it's all sort of alluded to but i mean lovecraft if you actually go into those texts like a lot of the time Firstly, it's not really; it's quite ambivalent, actually, as to whether it, whether the idea is that actually these evil entities are malevolent to humans, or actually they're just so alien that that's the only way humans can conceptualise them. And the truth is, they are sort of properly indifferent to the point where, if you've got the idea that they pose some sort of real threat to human civilization, that that's just another paranoid response to encountering this completely alien other. I mean, there's yeah, there are some bits in the Lovecraft corpus where it seems like that's what he's saying. Lovecraft is is also a kind of direct descendant of people like M.R. James and what really typifies most of those stories is actually what happens most of the time is some upper middle class gentleman like encounter has a brush with some cosmic supernatural horror but manages to deal with it <laughs> it just you know it turns out not to be that threatening to anything much really. and it doesn't affect his uh, doesn't, his, his very nice tailored yeah, you know exactly. outfit doesn't affect him I mean, I think we'll come back. We should come back to Lovecraft a bit more because we're going to do a sort of chronology. But Lovecraft, but there's, I would say, there's a particular sort of, you know, to, uh, the uh, literary cultural theorist Tony Bennett in the 1980s proposed this term I'm really fond of, which is the reading formation. That's basically a set of discourse, a set of ways of talking about a particular set of text or set of texts which end up generating a sort of received meaning about them, a sort of critical orthodoxy. And the sort of dominant reading formation around Lovecraft these days says that what he was doing was cosmic horror. And it was what he was doing was creating this picture of a completely of a horrifically indifferent cosmos. And I, I'm quite sceptical, actually, about that being a very credible reading of what he's actually doing. I think it's a lot tweer than that. But nonetheless, whether that's true or not, the idea that there is this Lovecraftian tradition, which, yeah, it sort of goes beyond good and evil, or it presents a vision of the universe in which the truth, the actual, the cosmic actuality of the universe, if you had to conceptualise it in terms of good or evil, would have to be conceptualised as evil just because of its sheer, its sheer indifference to human existence could only really be experienced by humans as malevolent. 
So I think, I guess the answer to all that is there is, horror does play around, play around at the boundaries between designating certain aspects of existence or the universe as actually evil. And on the other hand, just recognising them as so indifferent to human, you know, classificate systems of classification that the concept of good and evil wouldn't really be meaningful when thinking about. But that's part of what's unsettling. Yeah, exactly. That's part of what's unsettling. Exactly, yeah. is, is, is you're going like, what is what is going on here? And I mean, that that's, I guess, part of what plays on the, the psychology. I, I still feel like we haven't totally nailed down what is horror. I mean, horror as an affect. Because when it, if I think about that term, horror, uh, being a good you know scholar of canonical English literature, you know, the first thing I always think of is Joseph Conrad, the Heart of Darkness, you know, the horror, which famously you know concludes with the lines, "The horror, the horror," and the thing that the narrator of that story is horrified by. Well, I mean, it's no, it's notoriously ambivalent. I mean, it's it's a story in which a guy finds out that some African colonialist has sort of gone native and has sort of become the sort of cult leader of a group of wild African, you know savages and as they would put it and it's it's left really sort of ambivalent in the reader like what what is the horror of the horror is it the fact that human beneath the veneer of human civilization is the capacity to regress into this barbarous state or is it the fact that the the, the colonial project itself is so sort of hideous and damaging which, which is one of the themes which comes out in that novella like what is what is the horror of the horror but the, the term sort of in that novella, it designates coming to terms with some sort of some sort of reality that is so awful that you just can't really conceptualise it. It's sort of ineffable. But I think the term horror, it, designate, it does designate a sort of ineffability, doesn't it? Like you are horrified by something that you can't, that sort of exceeds your capacity to describe or explain it fully. I think you're right. There's something about being stunted out of being able to to describe in words but i do think being horrified is almost different in a way to what actually horror as a genre does because of all of the examples that you know especially Keir uh, made there talking about the different kinds of horror films and what they do like i don't think a jump scare which is one of the key things that a horror you know a type of horror film or a horror or reading you know a horror uh, piece of fiction might do or that kind of creeping horror feeling is the same as when one says i've been horrified by this situation which seems like a much broader and deeper sense than a kind of you know hormonal level affect uh, yeah i do think there is something there to that you know something that escapes description Classically with Lovecraft, he in, in Lovecraft he sort of says, this person was confronted by something which is utterly indescribable, and then he goes on to describe it basically <laughs> in, 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 in much depth. Uh, but yeah, but it does get to something, isn't it? And the, the other way you can get to that is, you know, something which sort of defies boundaries that doesn't quite fit or, or, you know, an amalgamation of different things that doesn't quite fit in our established categories. And people use the term the monstrous to talk about that, you know, that's something that doesn't fit in our understanding of how the world works or, or, or what should exist in the world. I've got one record, which is like the seminal classic goth record, which is from 1982, Bauhaus's Bela Lugosi's Dead. And Bela Lugosi was the great Hungarian actor who was famous for the first of the classic silent film portrayal of a vampire in the film Nosferatu, where he played, I mean, he, he plays Dracula in effect. And 
Susie and the Banshees really sort of defined the style and, and one of the stylistic variations of what would become goth music on their album Juju, which we played a track from last time. But the band that sort of defined uh, goth as a style and as an aesthetic most explicitly and took it also, brought it closer to sort of dance music in some ways. This was released as a quite popular 12-inch, was Bauhaus. Are we ready for the beast, Jerry? Are we ready for the chronology? Are we ready for the history yet? If you think about like like classical sort of folk traditions of, of, of horror, you do get that sort of thing that doesn't quite fit together. So like werewolves, for instance, jumping ahead a little bit in the in the chronology, but werewolves are one of these things which are part man, part animal, you know, the division between these things that should be completely separate. This is the human, this is the animal, you know, it gets blended together. And in fact, that's probably, you know, the Halloween season we mentioned earlier, you know, the... Well, I think the reason that we associate Halloween with with monsters and dressing up and horror films and these sorts of things is that you know it relates back to this to this sort of pagan festival. Is it Samhain, the end of summer, basically, where the idea is that the the barrier between the worlds, the natural world and the supernatural, become thin and spirits can leak through into our leak through into our world, and so you sort of do certain rituals, et cetera, to, to ward off the spirits. And then eventually that turns into hiring a zombie costume from, uh, from a dressing up shop and um, walking around. But it's precisely because, I mean, you said, you know, the werewolf uh, is, is, you know, a horror uh, type or, you know, like a, a horror beast because, you know, the human and the animal are supposed to be completely separate. But I think that's the point. They're not like humans are not separate from animals, but it's it's in culture where cult you culturally define yourself as separate. And so the horror comes in and is reminding you of something that is not separate in the same way that, you know, you think about a human being on this earth alive being separate from you know, the world of the dead, when of course we're not separate from the world of the dead, you know, in in, in a cosmic sense. It's not so much that there is a separation, it's that there is an imagined separation in culture because culture needs to create that separation in order to function so your mind is not constantly blown by the connection and oneness, in a way, is my reading. And that's the area that horror plays in. Yeah, but that's that's what's provoking this sort of, it's the breaking down of these boundaries of understanding or these clear distinctions we thought we had, which give the sort of, the, the, the feeling of disorientation and even horror is outer limits, I think. So we've got two tracks about wolves to talk about on this show. One is Warren Zevon's 1978 classic, uh, Werewolves of London, which is a sort of talking blues with a sort of walking piano, sort of boogie-influenced walking piano underneath it about werewolves in Lo- of London. It's actually pretty danceable, pretty funky, you know, quite the novelty classic very typical of those, some of that 70s piano-based singer-songwriter stuff you get in the wake of people like Elton John and a really weird theme for a song. London. 
kitchen door. You better not let him in. So our second werewolf song is from 1986. This is Jake C. Dodd and the Sons of Harry Cross and a Scouse werewolf in London. Uh, Jake C. Dodd, absolute Scouse icon. Uh, and this was on the classic album Wine Bars and Werewolves on Pro Plus Records, released in 1986. And I very much recommend anybody who can stream that or listen to it in, in any other format doing so. Got to the end, it's got quarter seven. Start to get ready till half eleven. Things got strange later that night. Stared at my hands, got a terrible right. There's hairs on my fingers and cubes on my thumb, but I'm blowing on my back and dreadlocks on my bum. The classic theorisation of horror as an of what we're calling horror to you it's is or horrific affect in the 20th century is is Freud's essay on on the uncanny, which still gets cited and cited again, and it relates to uh, the the ancientness of some of these tropes because, as you've alluded to, Keir, you know the earliest instances of what are in the European tradition of what are, what is called horror fiction is ancient Greek and Roman stories which feature ghosts and werewolves and other uh, were animals there's some sort of ghost or or or, re- or temporarily reanimated corpses who talk and also witches who do bad things to people with their magic and so all, all this is you know these are really persistent tropes and Freud in that essay on the uncanny I mean notoriously actually he doesn't really come up with a, a a, a properly psychoanalytic like account of the uncanny it's mostly he just sort of strokes his chin and points out how persistent like in everyday life never mind in fiction when he's writing like at the turn of the 19th 20th century is uh, how persistent fears and anxieties which are which as he in his terms are very primitive in nature his point is basically like nobody would have any weird feelings around dead bodies if they didn't have somewhere in their brain like whether it's repressed or whether it's conscious a lingering belief or partial belief in like the ancient ideas that the dead might come back that after death you know the, the spirits of the dead might become malevolent towards the living or something that his his point is basically that those a sort of animistic worldview or a really pre-scientific worldview, to some extent, it's still really difficult for people to shake. And it's really, even though we might they might consciously not believe in it, also children will fairly, he argues, will fairly spontaneously develop this sort of animistic worldview in which, you know, objects have intentions and living be animals including humans are animated by some sort of supernatural force which you might call a soul or something which has some kind of independent survival independent of the body and i mean that is the classic i mean that classic freudian uh, argument which has all sorts of problems with it but it is you know it suggests that these are one reason why these are such persistent tropes is precisely because really the whole business of move, of moving into a different kind of culture from a sort of you know say originary human hunter gatherer culture and a complete and a sort of animistic and magical belief system about the world into some more rational scientific or pre scientific view about the world that whole experience 
is one that involves having to repress and never quite completely let go of all, all kinds of assumptions about the way the world works and the cosmos works. And and it's something that, I mean, one of the big claims of psychoanalysis actually is that the business of becoming like civilized, uncultured human beings is to some extent something that every human has to go through. Like whatever, you know, even if they're living like in the 21st century in a highly advanced urban society, everybody still has to go through it. And the process of going through it is always sort of imperfect and produ- and makes it necessary to repress various kind of fears and assumptions that you're never quite free from. And so the idea is the uncanny is the experience of those things kind of coexisting, those feelings, those assumptions still coexisting with us. And that... I guess that does provide a fairly nice explanation of why you know, these tropes which we first see emerging at the very beginning of European urban civilization, like are still pretty persistent and, and seem to produce really similar feelings in people. Yeah, it also gives a sort of an explanation of why people would want to revisit those repressed fears, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, you know, to rehearse them and therefore bring them under control in some sort of way. Yeah. Well, that's one of the other arguments, isn't it? That partly, yeah, we enjoy this stuff partly because it's a sort of way of, you know, experiencing those feelings in a in a basically harmless way. It actually serves to delineate you know, the, the space of our lives in which they're acceptable. And one of the arguments is, well, we like people like going to horror films precisely because going to watch horror films lets you experience those uncanny and superstitious sentiments in a place that you sort of know on some conscious level is totally safe and is completely mm. fictional. And that helps you sort of get rid of them. And so you are able to like actually experience actual death and dead bodies and everyday life without like, you know, falling back into superstitious beliefs, as Freud or somebody would put it. Like a, like a ritual of license, you mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Okay. This, no, that's interesting. I mean, I just think this is the thing is that if, again, I'll go back to, to the issue that I have with that argument, which is that it, it makes the assumption, which for a lot of people we know is true. I mean, clearly it's, it's true for, for Keir, uh, this idea that you're experiencing that while you're watching it or reading that, and then it goes away. So there seems to be an end point, whereas for someone like me and other people who don't watch horror, it's like it doesn't go away. It stays with you and it affects your day to day life because you you can't suspend disbelief in that kind of boxed out neat way and exercise that kind of thought control. So that's the thing that, you know, I just think there are different characters or emotional landscapes in terms of it's not just about where we are in time. It's about what the kind of person that you are. Perhaps that's what I was doing when I was teaching. I've given May an education in horror. I was teaching her the tropes so that she could then, you know, put their yeah. position them, etc. Maybe. So, defense against the dark arts class. Mm. I'm going to <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe you're doing the right thing. Maybe all parents should be doing this. Maybe it was excellent parenting, Kia. Thanks, thanks. Yes. Uh, well, she does like horror films now, so that's that's fine. She and she can watch them, you know, and then put it behind her straight away. I think. Although she does seem to scream and cry at night a lot. (laughs) (laughs) The next song I'd really love to play is Enter Sandman by Metallica. This is a band that I have big problems with their political leanings, but I absolutely love. And again, I really love the sound of that song. And it's also very scary. That's from 1991. I can't believe Nadia's a metalhead. I'm a massive Metallica fan. unbelievable to me. (laughs) I love Metallica. Are you kidding me? I love Metallica.
that idea that horror tales, etc., a way which we can rehearse these ancient and sort of ontological fears and, and, and anxieties. That's not always true because they do actually emerge into the everyday world, these sort of panics and and have really serious sort of effects. I'm trying, of course, to make a some sort of connection to talk about witches and the witch hunts that, that sort of sparked in the sort of late medieval period, the whole witch hunt panic, etc., that swept across Europe, swept through Britain. We mentioned it last trip we had, etc., when I mentioned my partner Alice Nutter taking her name from one of the witches that were that were hung on Pendle Hill. Yeah, well, this is super interesting. And, like, I would say I'm not – I don't regard myself as a real, like – academic authority on the history of witchcraft and witch panic but i like i've got good close friends and colleagues who are and i've sort of it's an interesting topic so i've sort of tried to keep up with it a bit over the past few years and yeah i mean actually this is interesting to think about in relation to that so those sort of classical sources because if you're like in early medieval europe for example the position of the Christian church on witches and witchcraft is this is all just nonsense. These are just old superstitions. This is stuff like the pagan Romans and Greeks believed in and stuff like ignorant peasants believe in, but it's just a myth. It's not something that proper modern Christians should even believe in at all. I mean, that is the official position of the church in like like the 12th century. And then what happens is, you know, there's this growing literature from the sort of sort of 14th century onwards, really, initially mostly written by sort of highly educated, you know, men in places like Italy, which claims actually, no, no, there really are witches, and there's all this demonology, and there's this, and they and they worship the devil, and they do all this stuff, and basically, I haven't heard a historian put it in exactly these terms, so I might be misunderstanding something. But as far as I understand it, they are basically taking a load of tropes that at one stage are just dismissed as old-timey fiction by the authorities, but they are putting them in a slightly different, in a sort of a- academic, sort of quasi-pseudo-academic form, and saying, no, no, this is true, this is all true, this stuff. It's conspiracy, isn't it? Cla- it's classic conspiracy, the architecture of it. Yeah, it is a sort of conspiracy theory. And then that develops, and these guys are, they're sort of intellectual, they're sort of intellectual entrepreneurs, you know, they're sort of making a name for themselves, and like becoming, selling books, and getting to positions of authority on the basis of these claims they're making about their knowledge of you know witchcraft and demonology and and how to deal with it it coincides with the effects of the reformation and then with the the massive social dislocations that people are experiencing like in the as you move from the medieval into the early modern period you know and by the the early 17th century you've got this situation where it's like codified in law in, in places like britain and many other countries the idea that there is witchcraft people really do do it you need to have the state authorities intervene and it accelerates, as we talked about in the last episode, into the actual, you know, the witch panics, the literal witch hunts, under the Inquisition in Catholic countries and under the, you know, auspices of professional witch hunters in the Protestant countries like England and Scotland. So, yeah, so that isn't, I mean, that is really, it does seem like that's a situation in which what you might call like sort of horror fictions at some stage, then just like getting believed by people. You see a later iteration to that much more recently when, you know, the impact of the sort of hot wave of horror films, a lot of them with like satanic and witchcraft themes, in like, you know, in the 70s, like is clearly 
a key factor feeding into the, the moral panics around suppose satanism and, and ritual child abuse in in the 80s you know we were talking about this preparing the show and i remember when i you know i, I moved from the northwest of england to uh, the suburbs of atlanta georgia you know for a couple of years when i was nine and it was really sort of incredible that a lot of the kids i was at school with who were um, from evangelical Christian families, like had this entire cosmology they firmly believed in about like the presence of Satan in the world and ghosts and hell and stuff, which clearly derived more from horror films than it was actually from like the Book of Revelation. That's interesting, actually. Yeah, how the personification of it is coming out from culture rather than from you know the pictures written in the Bible or whatever. So sometimes people do end up believing this stuff that's clearly, that it does, you know, these shapes do feed into like people's actual beliefs in, in a way which has really, really damaging effects. I mean, it's, you know, it is a, it's a feature of like the rise for certain kind of American right wing politics in the eighties and nineties, a belief, you know, that Satan is an active presence in the world, like rather than like capitalism being the thing that is you know, causing you to lose your job and stuff. Of course, QAnon is the is the latest iteration of that, which takes up all of that satanic panic, ritual abuse of children, etc. Adds in some more fiction, such as Adrenochrome from yeah. um, Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. You know, the boundaries between fiction and and what people believe, or at least act on on act as though they believe on these things, is is thin. Yeah. I'd also love it if we played the original theme tune from the 1984 film Ghostbusters by Ray Parker Jr., which I just think is a really fun uh, song. And for anyone who grew up in that era, it's kind of a jingle that gets stuck in your head. Something strange in the neighborhood. Should we move on to the gothic novel, that sort of wave of horror fiction, probably the first wave of horror fiction, but it's got its roots in those sort of folk traditions of of, of monsters, etc., etc. Every account of gothic in English literature says the first gothic novel is Horace Walpole's book, The Castle of Otranto, which is published in the mid-18th century. And The Castle of Otranto was this literary sensation because... It was the first time a novel had been published that was explicitly scary and people and critics and readers talked about how they they enjoyed its scariness and this was seen as a huge novelty. If you read it now, it's like, it's more like a sort of medieval fantasy. Like it's about sort of, um, you know, it's set in a vaguely medieval setting. It's got knights and princesses and magic, but it, it has kind of tragic overtones and ghosts feature in it. But ghosts don't really feature any more heavily in it than they do in Hamlet or Macbeth, actually. Not much more. I mean, ghosts are a really central, play a central role in the two, you know, two of Shakespeare's tragedies, you know, the most iconic uh, texts of the entire English literary canon. So, again, I think it's, it's as much about the reading formation that emerges around them as it is about the, any, the specificity, specificity of the text themselves. And it's about the fact that the castle of Otranto is seen as leading to a wave of so-called Gothic fiction. And Gothic, I mean, Gothic is a funny term, you know, because originally it comes from, the, you know, the Germanic, you know, people who you know, had very complex and often very hostile relationships with the late Roman Empire, the so-called Goths. And... 
the idea of gothic as designating an aesthetic was really the, related to the fact that in the 18th century in Britain and into the and in the 19th century, they were generally perceived as having been two main aesthetic traditions that cultural forms could draw on, and they were the classical. So it was this idea of all the clean lines and pure rationality of Athenian and Roman Republican culture. And there was the Gothic, by which they really meant actually sort of medieval. I mean, why they said, I mean, I mean, there's a whole, there was a whole kind of, there was a lot of sort of pseudo history to the reasons why they thought that like medieval architecture and medieval literature uh, had their roots in the, the you know the culture of the goths which is just nonsense really uh, and and they just differentiated this from the kind of classical tradition but that's why we call the architecture of like the house of commons gothic but really what we mean is pseudo medieval uh, as distinct from sort of classical which is how people would have thought of it so but there's so basically the term gothic sort of just means anything that's a bit sort of medievally and i think that's interesting for us because well, there's quite a blurry distinction from that point on between the Gothic and just sort of found what we would just call fantasy, basically, because the because the Castle of Otranto is really just a sort of fantasy novel with 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 some ghosts in it. Um, it's yeah, it's a tragic fantasy novel with some ghosts in it. But the reason sort of later critics and literary historians see it as the beginning of this phase of like Gothic literature is because it sort of culminates in the publication of Frankenstein and it's Mary Shelley's novel Frankenstein which really marks this very distinctive and quite new like I think sort of literary form these very new sort of tropes which obviously connects to some of these really old themes but it does so in a really new way when when that is published in the early 19th century I'm not a literature specialist but I would sort of want to uh, th- throw it out there it's really frankenstein which is the first like horror pro- modern horror novel like more than castle of Otranto, which is an interesting sort of intermediary thing yeah i mean frankenstein's interesting because it's obviously linked to the enlightenment isn't it basically and it's sort of a it's a warning around science basically because it's obviously Frankenstein is the is the doctor who reanimates the corpse, etc. But he doesn't just reanimate; of course, he creates a whole living being from body parts and yeah, through yeah. the power, yeah, the, yeah. The, the the scientific power of electricity. Yeah, because people have really had their minds blown, like very recently in the time when this comes out, by the realization that there's some connection between electricity, which they're just starting to be able to produce and generate, yeah. and like the animate the thing that makes bodies move. But like Mary Shelley's a really interesting person because she's the daughter of William Godwin, who's a, like a really early anarchist political philosopher. Oh, basically. I didn't know really, that. Really, interesting. Really tied, yeah. You're really tied up with it with this idea of the Enlightenment. We get, you know, reason is going to lead us to a, a better world, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And her mother was Mary Wollstonecraft. <laughs> An early feminist theorist, of course, an activist. Yeah, the author of the of Indication of the Rights of Woman. So it's like, so she is so basically her her mum and dad are really at the forefront of like the liberatory potentials of the Enlightenment and of reason, etc. And that Frankenstein is almost like a warning, a warning that that could go wrong. Do you know what I mean? That in fact we have to sort of pay attention to to these sorts of things, etc. We can't just um, do these experiments and then let them loose into the world. You know, they need to be cared for in some sort of way or, or brought back into the world of reason not just let to go off and rampage around and kill a young child and all these sorts of things but it's that it's that sort of link to the to the liberated potentials of the enlightenment i think positions 
Frankenstein in a sort of interesting way, as in uh, it's probably one of the first of those sorts of Gothic novels that couldn't have been written in a different historical period. Then if we're going to go on into along our chronology, we'd probably go to to sort of Dracula, wouldn't we? That does leap quite a lot, actually, doesn't it? Because like Frankenstein's 1818 and Dracula is like 1897 or something, I think, Bram Stoker's Dracula. But vampires are, are an, an older sort of trope, also sort of emerges in different parts of the world. And in fact, vampires are in um, Capital, aren't they? Because Mark says, Capital is dead labour, that vampire-like only lives by sucking living labour. He would have written that before um, Bram Stoker's novel came out. So that imagery, that idea that, that this is an undead which um, have to suck the blood of the living in order to survive, which is his metaphor for capital, of course, which can only survive by exploiting living labour and capital itself is dead labour. It's the, it's the machinery and plants and the, and the, and the capital that's been produced from, from the, the living labour of the past, etc. That metaphor of the, of the vampire is obviously quite prominent before Dracula, Bram Stoker's Dracula comes out. There are sort of different poles, and like at one end of the continuum of horror fiction, it is basically just fantasy fiction with some in which the the baddies are like allied to the devil or something, and the goodies are having adventures, preventing them doing their evil doings. And then at the other end, there's this incredibly bleak picture of a universe which is coldly indifferent to human suffering and, and probably just conducive to it. And then I guess that sort of golden age of the early 20th century, you've got these writers like M.R. James and H.P. Lovecraft, who we talked about earlier. And they are, so, I guess, actually what makes them so lastingly influential and still so seemingly brilliant is the fact that they, they play with those elements. They sort of move between those two poles very deftly in a way which is very, is, is very sort of affecting, I think. Yeah, let's get on to when we can put, see this stuff in film, all of the stuff that I don't like watching. I don't mind <laughs> well, reading. Well, Dracula and Frankenstein, I'll read, but I won't watch any of this 20th century movies. Like another reading of this, of this, so Lovecraft is associated with these gods who are indifferent to the to the suffering or even the hopes of of human beings. You can link that to fiction that precedes it slightly, such as War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, in which you have these aliens from Mars who come down. At the end of that novel, H.G. Wells says, "The horror is that the that these aliens that the Martians were treating us as we treat the colonials." It's a novel about colonial anxieties, basically. What if they treat us the way that we treat them and so that is the a little bit of that that the indifference of a perhaps in lovecraft that's taken up to a cosmic level and so it's more akin to something like you know humans stepping on ants or something like that well the other thing to say about that is the, the standard account of of where the sort of cosmic horror of people like lovecraft in the 20s is coming from is that sense from the late 19th century onwards that humans have been completely decentered in their picture of the universe that um both the Darwin's theory of evolution and the discovery of sort of this discoveries in geology, which make it clear to people that the world is much, much older than people had thought and that humans had, had not been around for much of the history of planet Earth at all, that it really kind of freaks people out in lots of ways and that this is being dramatized in these fictions about discovering that the unit the whole universe works according to a different set of principles to the one that you thought it worked according to and this is really scary but then 
I mean, in people like M.R. James and in Dracula and stuff, it's not really that. It's more a kind of reaction, a conservative fantasy in which you find out that actually a sort of medieval Christian cosmology is true and there are various things you can do to protect yourself from these evil forces or you can just avoid them, not, not get involved with them. Yeah, I mean, the, the classic M.R. James uh, protagonist is like an Oxford Don. A gold, a gold thing, yeah, Oxford Don. <laughs> yeah. But like, oh, oh, an Oxford Don has come, and who so so in that I, I whistle, whistle, and I'll come to you, my love, which is a famous classic. My lad, um, Emma, I my lad. Yeah. Okay, um, like I've not actually read that, but I watched. I've watched the Jonathan Miller nineteen sixty nine, which is the classic TV series of it. And in that, you know, he's a the protagonist is an Oxford Don. He's actually an analytical philosopher, <laughs> and sort of you know he's eliminated. All of the fears, etc., just don't fit in his categories, etc. And he finds this whistle and he blows it and he starts to get haunted, etc. And all these sorts of things. In MR James, there is these these sorts of sort of modern men, modern men of a certain type who don't believe in any of this mumbo jumbo. And then they basically dig something up from the earth and discover that these ancient fears are actually have something more to them. Etc. Although you know you are right, they don't tend to come to a particularly sticky end at the end of it. But are these are these you know these works of fiction? Are they written to horrify? No, I don't think they are. Yeah, they were. They, I mean, M. R. James was writing them to sort of perform as sort of you know Christmas ghost stories, perform like as in read out to his friends, etc. And these sorts of things. So I, they, they, it was probably not to horrify somebody. It was more to yeah provoke that sense of you know uneasiness or whatever. But I would say when you know I would say that is a really central strand of, of horror fiction in the twentieth century. I would say most of Stephen King is that. Most of Stephen King is oh you find out you're actually in this world in which like gods and demons are real, but they're not like the, the totally controlling forces of the universe. They're ultimately things you can deal with. Like there'll be some collateral damage along the way. But if you know the right rituals or the right things to do or the right things to activities to avoid, you can sort of deal with it. So I think I don't think you can. And then so I so I think that, um, you know, I don't think you can say like the the the, the overall purpose is to horrify in a lot of horror fiction is is to horror, the affect of horror is part of the experience of it. But ultimately, it's either just a sort of adventure fantasy or it, or it leaves you in some sense like comforted. Yeah, I mean, it has to be resolved at the end of it. Otherwise, it really is. It could leave you in a horrific way. <laughs> Although, obviously, as you get later on, you know, you get you get the um, the monster has been defeated by um, some teenage girls. So it couldn't have been a particularly horrific monster to start with, or a particularly effective monster to start with. Hey, what are you saying about the effectiveness of teenage girls to take over the forces of evil? Oh yeah, we said it's not evil. It's not the same as evil. <laughs> well, yeah, but they're not the SAS, are they? That's the point. It could be, you know, uh, but that's not the point. My point is, you know, basically kill the heart, the monster, and then of course the hand comes out out of the grave as the last scene of the film, in order to permit a sequel and a series, etc. In the 90s, there was this subgenre of hip-hop called horrorcore. It was sort of almost sort of like emerging out of gangster rap, and it was a little bit like you'd push the sort of violent imagery of gangster rap into sort of almost supernatural sort of slasher film sort of territory, if you like. Uh, out of that, we should probably play Gravedigger's Diary of a Madman, which is from 1994. The lyrics are about, you know, this scene where... Presumably, grave diggers are in a are in a court pleading insanity on a murder charge, 
they're basically making the argument, look, the condition of young black men in America today, no wonder we go insane. So it's like that linking through to that from social realism into into sort of almost camp horror, actually, in that. Be a witness as I exercise my exorcism. The evil that lurks within the sin, the terrorism. Possess my evil spirits, voices from the dead. I come forth with grave diggers in a head full of dread. I've been examined ever since I was semen. They took a sonogram and seen the image of a demon. At birth, nurses surrounded me with needles and drug me all up with the diseases of evil. Grew up in hell, now I dwell in an Islamic temple. I'm fighting a holy war in the mental. Look deep in my eyes, you see visions of death. Possessed. The other people you might want to mention in that from that genre are Insane Clown Posse. It's definitely in that horror core. And they have these fans called Juggalos who dress up like the band with like horror facial uh, makeup on to make them look like creepy clowns, etc. Juggalos have even been accused of becoming criminal gangs, etc. Sort of interesting genre. Something a bit like goth clowns, something like that, which is an unusual thing to say. Let me just take it back a little bit to this, to this, uh, this sort of the colonial argument, because I think if we want to go through our canon of monsters, the next one that appears would be the zombie, I think. And the zombies are quite interesting because you have different versions of zombies as you go through the 20th century and into the 21st century, actually. And so the the, the first zombies, the, the, the zombie myth comes from voodoo rituals and, and voodoo rituals and things that grow up in, in, in Haiti. But the first sort of zombie monsters they're not like the zombies that we think of now they're basically bodies which are animated and controlled by a magician basically a magician controls these bodies either dead or sort of undead they can be sort of living person put into a trance or they can be resurrected bodies etc and they're put to work basically it's more or less a direct analogy to slavery and it grows and they, they emerges out of slave societies haiti was the first Oh, the only society which is over, which has had a successful slave revolt and overthrown their colonial masters, or their, or in fact, their slave-owning masters in the Haitian Revolution, of course. And so, basically, it's that idea of so. There's nineteen oh, thirty, early nineteen thirties. There's one of the first zombie films, and it's called White Zombie, and it's about a white woman who goes on, goes to Haiti, and get becomes under the power of one of these magicians, and she has to be set to work like these other black people who are uh, under his power and it is obviously and it is a fear of that what if we had the loss of autonomy that you can see in 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 either so we've inflicted on, on everyone else inflicted yeah. on everyone else and then of course there's the, the other great strand in that sort of wave of zombies are zombie uprisings which are basically fears around slave revolts i mean it's only you know in the zombies that we we know now the sort of zombie myth that we operate with now is basically invented by George A. Romero in the film Night of the Living Dead, which is late 60s, isn't it? From like 69, I think, which is all of a sudden there's no magician animating them. In fact, it's a contagion thing. I'm not quite sure what sparked it off, but, um, you know, if you get killed by a zombie, then you, you, you know, you come back as a zombie sort of thing. And in fact, the, in, fact in, in Night of the Living Dead, I think, the, the implication is there's a, a a particular meteorite goes past and then all of the 
or dead people rise up and start to kill the living, etc., etc. The original, the Night of the Living Dead, is there's a big theme around race. The protagonist is a black man, and at the end, he gets shot by this this posse of sheriffs and southern white fat men with hats on who um, are patrolling around shooting down zombies etc in a way which really does bring to mind sort of like the horrors of, of of the american south and he gets shot being mistaken for a zombie but like the big thing with that that, that early zombie mark ii we'll call it is they shuffle around they're not particularly dangerous do you know what i mean they just shuffle around and you can just run around them if you want to they only become dangerous if the living can't cooperate, basically. And so all of the zombie films of, of, of in that George A. Romero sort of set, they're all around people getting into the position of safety in a group, and then that group dynamics breaking up and then putting them all at risk and everybody dies, basically. So that's in Night of the Living Dead. And then the, the greatest of all zombie films is Dawn of the Dead from 1978, in which people, the survivors, get into a shopping mall <laughs> and indulging consumption uh, and then eventually they they fuck it up and get killed the zombies in that are obviously us right it's all about consumption and it's like why the why the zombies wanting to come into the mall it's because you know there's some residue of their habitual behavior etc etc you know it's us we're the zombies we're the zombies because we you know, we're pushed around by consumerism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's like, there's two different zombies. And then there's a, there's a different wave of zombies in the 2010s, which the zombies are fast, et cetera. Perhaps we'll talk about that later. When you guys were talking about this, just conceptually, the idea of fast zombies, I found hilarious. I didn't actually know this was a thing. It's so, a big thing, you know, yeah. clearly I'm way out of uh, my depth of my zombie knowledge. So you just don't like any like vampires and zombies, for example. No, I mean I like like. <laughs> <laughs> there are no vampires, no <laughs> no monsters. No, I mean actually it's not that at all, and this is why this comes back to the question that I was asking earlier, which is that you know talking about whether I can read Frankenstein, you know I don't find it scary. It's the it's the concept of if I watch something and. It, and it's horrifying. Well, I don't even know if it's horrifying. If, that's, if I'm scared, I don't want to watch things or read things that make me scared because I don't enjoy the experience of it. And I especially don't enjoy the experience of it afterwards. So it's not so much that, like, do I like vampires? I, I don't know how to engage with, like, do I like vampires or monsters? You know what I mean? Like, you know, it's not like, oh, my God, I hate... Halloween and I have to go to another country when it happens like it's not it's not that at all it's just I don't I don't understand the 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 attraction or what it does for human beings I'm totally happy to talk about the and engage with the genre and the different monsters but you're not going to get me to go watch any of this shit afterwards having said all of that I mean a note on Stephen King is Actually, I have engaged with some Stephen King. Not, I've not read any of his novels specifically because they're horror and I don't want to be horrified uh, or scared, rather. But he does have this one book, which I have, which is a fantastic book called On Writing, A Memoir of the Craft. And it's not a horror book. It's a book about basically his how he has come to be a writer and his tips for writing which if like me you know you've written a novel is a fantastic book like it's a, it's a it's a bible almost but because of course he's a horror writer what he does is when he breaks down the craft he actually shows you the you know how you can make 
a sentence horrifying. And that's the stuff that I'm interested in. So I can talk about that. And I'm interested in that because I'm interested in the writing of fiction and how in the craft of writing fiction and how words are put together through sentences and syntax on paper, you can create suspense and drama. And, you know, he writes a few words about that. And I find myself sitting like scared, <laughs> even though he's not talking about something scary. Do you see what I mean? So I'm interested in that architecture, but it's not the same as, you know, it won't make me go read a horror book. He's also, he's very left-wing Stephen King, isn't he? Isn't and he's excellent on Twitter. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty anti-Twitter, as you guys know, but I will go on Twitter to watch you guys have a spat or, you know, read Stephen King tweets. I can't believe you're on horror Twitter and you're giving us all this about... <laughs> but like horror. Um, I, I mean, it's an interesting point you're making because I, it's an interesting distinction because I would say I'm not particularly, in terms of cinema, like I don't particularly watch or enjoy any sort of generic horrors. I've never particularly liked or been interested in monster films. I don't like body horror uh, or, or, you know, it's sort of extreme versions of torture porn. What do you think is the is the feel like the things like you know I, invasion of the body snatchers and that sort of thing like what's going on there like what does that say about the the the, the times that we're not able to be laid to rest like things are not final well invasions of the body snatchers which is often classified more as science fiction than horror was this film I mean there are several different versions remakes of it I think but the original version came out in the fifties and it's the idea that aliens are coming to Earth, but they're able to take over people's bodies. I'm not, I don't remember if it's ever even made clear, like, what... No, no, they, they basically grow they grow versions of people in, as pods, and then they okay. go and replace the the living beings, basically. So it's AI, then. Yeah, <laughs> it's so people an being AI replaced. Analogy. And it's it's generally... I mean, it's read as an allegory of, of anti-communist paranoia, the idea that oh, the, really? the, the aliens are the communists who are taking out, who are brainwashing people yeah. and taking them over. And it's coming out of these Cold War fears about the idea that the Soviets are developing these psychological techniques that can hypnotise people and take them over. But Reds Under the Bed is the opposite way around. It's not saying that the the Reds are alien. They're saying that the Reds are amongst us. That's that's the point point of the the body snatchers. It's like your mum might have been body snatched. Oh, right. I see. I haven't watched it. So I see. So people look exactly the same, etc. But they're acting strangely and they have strange beliefs. So it's, oh, so my mum... So so that one of the classic, one of the horror, the, the horrific moments in in like second wave zombie films, zombie two point as we've been calling it, is when um your your daughter or your husband dies and then comes back as a zombie and you have to kill your daughter etc or your or your husband the zombie version you've got to put one in the head this is the way you kill zombies but yeah. of course and so it's a similar thing with with um, invasion of the body snatchers in that um. You know, basically, it's the same people. They look exactly the same, but they're pod people now, and because they they basically have different ideas in their heads and they behave in a different way. And of course, you have to kill them as well. <laughs> the great. Oh yeah, that, that makes sense. So it's sort of yeah. There, there's a, there's definitely an overlap in in that basically. So it's like the the zombies and the aliens. They are not us in the first version. Zombies and the aliens in the sort of like 1950s and 60s. They are us all of a sudden. Although you know. Uh, and us, which is just an inch to the left or something. I mean, the thing I was going to say before in relation to what Nadi was saying about sort of admiring the craft of King is for me, there is this, there is a set of horror film, classic horror films, which I sort of, I really admire for the extent that they are genuinely unsettling. And I do sort of, I can enjoy watching them in the sense that 
I'm admiring their craft at unsettling me. I mean, the, the, when we were making Nate's, the classic example for me was Rosemary's Baby, the Roman Polanski film about a woman finding out that the, the, the baby with whom she's pregnant is actually the Antichrist, which then gives way, you know, is the inspiration for the things like the Omen series. But, uh, and those, and then it's like the Blair Witch Project, um, for example. See, I think, I think I've watched Rosemary's Baby and I think, I mean, I love Silence of the Lambs. So, I mean, there we go. That's one. And, but I don't, I don't classify those as horror. So maybe I don't have a wide enough sense of horror, but with Rosemary's Baby, it's almost a kind of a, a creeping, dread but it's a different kind of dreeping dread it's like oh, all these people who were around you and you thought were normal were actually something other than what yeah you, you find think, out right? that all the people living in her upper west side building are actually satanists but but then the, the crucial thing it is this sort of we're doing massive spoilers here oh shit <laughs> we are realized. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. we'll just we stick a, a we'll just spo- we'll stick a spoiler alert in the in the in the, yeah. the text that nobody reads, don't worry. We'll cover ourselves. But I think it does come back to this interesting question, and it's like what people are getting out of it. Because we've talked about the sort of some of the psychological and psychoanalytic sort of explanations and sort of cultural explanations of these things being sort of political, cultural allegories. But also, we've, as I said when we were preparing the show, like I do also have a theory that to some extent, you know, I mean, part of what's going on in a lot of horror, I think more in, probably more in, in sort of things with jump scares that make people scream or some sort of body horror and stuff, is that there is almost just this visceral physical reaction to the fact that these images and these plot devices, you know, they, they make your body produce adrenaline. A lot of people's everyday lives, there isn't a lot of adrenaline. And adrenaline is kind of a high, gives you a kind of a high, you know, it gives you kind of a buzz. This is the bit that I think I'm really interested in. Because, like, men in the world, a lot of men are under threat from, like, randomly being beaten up. And women feel, like, under threat from rape. Like, I'm not saying every second of your life, but, like... I don't know. Do people really have lives where they don't have that adrenaline? I don't think most people feel themselves to be under physical threat most of the time. Okay. I don't think they do. And statistically, they're not. Let's be clear. Statistically, like any any one man or woman is not going is highly unlikely to suffer. Yeah, but does it mean that you don't feel like you know? I mean, definitely, if you're a woman walking alone at night, there's a reason why there are horror Mm. movies around that because it's. We all have that. Like as a woman, you're experiencing that. If you're a young, if you're a young man, I mean, the threat of you know being beaten up or mugged or whatever. I mean, that's a thing. Like I don't know. Again, it's different to the statistics around it and like how we behave in the world and what we're wary of. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, that I mean that does sort of come back to Freud's point to some extent about these there being certain fears which you know are not on paper even i mean even that's interesting one i mean the fear of violent crime with every demographic like people are more afraid of violent crime than they are statistically likely to suffer it like there's no completely there's no demographic in which you're actually likely to and i mean i remember it used to be i used to have this conversation with people in the 90s because it was like you're far more statistically likely to get burgled than suffer any of those crimes and i would always tell people you should get house insurance but, but what you but back to your original point, the adrenaline comes from the fear. So regardless of the fact of what statistically is going to happen to me, if I'm walking down the street, which is darker than I expect it to be or whatever, I'll be like, shit, you know, I'll get my keys out or whatever. And I already will have the adrenaline rush. And I experience that, you know, obviously not all the time, but quite often. 
of being on guard. So, so because I experienced that, I don't want that <laughs> in a film. And that's the thing that I'm, I'm trying to, like, obviously this is not the only one. Uh, violence is not the only one, but you know, the being in a, in, in uh, at home and you hear a strange noise downstairs, like that's, that happens to a lot of people. And most people go like, it's probably nothing, but sometimes you think, shit and your brain goes to where you've seen a horror movie or could we all know those cultural again tropes and statistically it doesn't stand up but it happens enough to get the adrenaline going i think you're right actually i mean to, I, from that point of view i'm, I'm quite persuaded i mean the freudian explanation is quite persuasive i mean it does sort of match i feel like my own sort of existential experience that you just there's some bit of your brain that like yeah if you're alone in the house and you hear a noise think oh that must be a ghost it's like i i don't believe in ghosts like i don't i really don't think it's a ghost and and I, and that moment doesn't last for more than a fleeting second but it is sort of there way and worse than a ghost is that it's a murderer yeah no with me it's just a ghost right. <laughs> like I mean, the argument that then, like, actually, the point of horror fiction is partly just to explore those feelings in a totally controlled way, in a totally mm. safe way, and, and partly to see the ways in which they can be made fun. Because I do think, I mean, a lot of it, like I keep saying, an awful lot of what we call horror fiction, as I keep saying, is basically just a sort of fantasy fiction. You know, you, the hero saves the day, you know, the problems are, are resolved, you know, the fears turn out to be real, but not, not irrevocable. And even in sort of cosmic horror, actually, I think there's this weird, like, emotional comfort people get from the idea of learning that, oh, actually, like, the whole universe is, is controlled by completely inaccessible cosmic forces. There's nothing you can do to make the world better. So just sit back, you know, relax, have a have a beer, you know. And I, I just think there is. There's a sort of fatal... There's a sort of, you know, there's a sort of pleasure in fatalism, which is more... Because in some ways, it's more relaxing than being told, well, actually... You know, we can make the world better. We, we're probably going to fail, but there's a, there's enough of a chance that we have to keep trying. Like, even though we're probably going to fail, it's going to be really knackering. But all that does, it does sort of fit with the Freud account. Actually, you can you can have a sort of somewhat politicized version of that as well, which would say that we'll. I mean, a lot of the time, the fantasy in horror is well. It is actually. I haven't really spelled this out properly. I think a lot of fa- a lot of horror fiction. I think is a fantasy about problems turning out to have a supernatural source that can be mitigated in some way. And I think people actually enjoy that. It's sort of comforting because it's better than the actual social reality, the actual social reality of of which is we live in a society which causes major problems, which is staring human extinction in the face. And it, the, the, it, that does not have supernatural sources. It has human political institutional economic sources we experience them as very very intractable like far less tractable than just like having to know the right spell to dispel the demon or something facing that reality is really quite difficult a lot of the time and so a lot of like horror fiction i think is giving you just the sort of escapism of in- inhabiting an imagined world in which at least some of the problems we are around are are more tractable because they're supernatural. They're not just they're not just subject to incredibly complex social processes that that it, it seem it feels like it's impossible to intervene in. And yeah, that that's all. Yeah, right, that all tracks into into conspiracy fantasies like QAnon, etc. As well, you know, these things which seem horrific are actually quite reassuring because, um, you know, they're a lot simpler than they would have been if they, if these if. You know, if there weren't these agencies controlling the world, even if they are indifferent, huge, 
old ones, etc. But I think like it also works back the other way, though, doesn't it? So some horror creates non-supernatural monsters by massively exaggerating their instance. And I'm thinking of like the whole turn towards horror around serial killers in the 1980s in particular. Well, probably from Psycho, which is earlier than that, but then into sort of, well, sort of slasher films, but also, you know, one with Anthony Hopkins in it. Silence of the Lambs. I thank you. Yeah, the, the Silence of the Lambs. There is no supernatural. It's just these horrific, really intelligent serial killers, etc., which I think does have a big role in, in, in exaggerating and playing up the sort of fear of violent crime beyond its, its reality particularly in terms of serial killers, which is incredibly, incredibly rare, etc. You can understand why it happens. There's a whole series of high-profile serial killers from the Yorkshire Ripper on, uh, you know, in the 1980s, late 1970s and into the 1980s. So you can see sort of why it comes about, but it's like they're trying to create a fear of something which doesn't really exist, but not in a supernatural way. But it exists enough Yes. To it exists enough, so nobody nobody hears a story of like some horrific like serial killer shit going on on the news and goes, oh yeah, whatever. Like nobody nobody has that emotional reaction. You might be able to rationalize it and be like, well, later with the statistics, but your initial reaction to something like that happening in the real world is that you're horrified. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. and that and, and that's what the the genre or parts of the different you know fictionalization of 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 those sorts of stories does is it plays on that the fact that you just do have a reaction. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you have the horror, which makes you completely be unable to properly calculate the risks involved. I there's basically no risk of that happening to you. Or so remote that it's, it's not no risk. Well, yeah, but it's so remote that it, you know it's not something you have to worry about. Whereas there's lots of actual risks, like walking down the street or crossing the road, which are really quite high risks. You know what I mean? Are serial killers different from slashers? Yeah. So basically, there's, they have a big trend in the 1980s and probably into the 1990s. It is this growth of, of like the slasher films, etc., and also like films which are basically horror films which are basically set in suburbia. So they come inside the house. So like, but perhaps the classic horror film of that is the early '80s film Poltergeist, where it's really, re- really explicitly set in suburbia. Um, you know, it's a really domestic setting, etc. And then this poltergeist is haunting the house because it's buried on a an ancient burial ground, etc. And all these sorts of things. And then the sort of slasher things, such as Halloween, is the classic John Carpenter's Halloween is the classic slasher film. Like Halloween's really odd because it's that's a world in which there are basically no parents. It's just like young teenagers, etc. They're the ones who basically have to die and have to deal with this thing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it is that, that like the house, we can't just stay in the house because the house is then the, the arena for this new wave of, of horror. Yeah, I mean, those slasher films, it's almost impossible not to have a, like a Freudian interpretation. That the, you know, the slasher is like the avenging superego. Mm. It was you know, <laughs> punishing the punishing the adolescent for yeah. having breached, you know, breached parental authority. Yeah, I mean the classic it's, thing is if you see if you see a young couple having sex in a slasher film, they're the next to go, basically. Yeah, and quite right too, I think. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> we surely can't talk about horror in music without mentioning Black Sabbath, who are the heavy metal band who really invented the idea of having this deliberately like pseudo-satanic imagery in their name and on their album sleeves and stuff. And by I think by common consent, their classic definitive track 
1970, I think it's from 1970, from their second album, this track, Paranoid. Obviously, a lot of horror is about the experience of paranoia. It's a song sort of about the feeling that you're going mad, which is the theme of a lot of horror fiction. But also, you know, this track, in many ways, this is the track that defines heavy metal as a distinctive genre, as something that's different from the kind of heavy blues-based rock of their, also from Birmingham contemporaries, Led Zeppelin, for example. We've done this little bit of a, of a history of monsters and the monstrous and horror fiction and horror films. If we looked around at like the prevalent horror films and horror fiction of the time, what does that tell us about our own contemporary fears and how that works out? Well, I mean, the most obvious, the most sort of in, obvious example of a really interesting film in the horror idiom recently, I, I guess, is Get Out, which is a film about about racism, which uses a, a, um, the sort of horror idiom to explore themes around racism. Well, in fact, there's a that's that's a really good link to the, the point you made earlier, actually, Nadia, because the f- the film starts with a young black man being really spooked out, walking through a white neighbourhood, going, "Oh fucking hell, I'm going to get you know, I'm going to get harassed." And then he sees a car pull up. He's going, "Nope, no, 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 I'm not having that." And then he gets attacked by the person in the car and dragged in, dragged into the car, and, and later becomes hypnotized anyway we won't get into that but it's that it's a little bit like you know the the, the fear women have walking down the streets the fear young black Americans. everyday fears that's the starting point at which the film takes off and then there's a lot of post-apocalyptic stuff isn't there there's things like 28 days later or, or apocalyptic things like children of men yeah the contemporary sort of Zombie TV and that—that's much more to do with a post-apocalyptic. I mean, this is a, this is a super interesting question, as in, like, what are the current fears? Fears. I mean, I feel like we, you know, we intellectualize this stuff and think about it a lot. So, I, but I'm not sure what is the fear of the nation in the in the states that we're in because it, it necessitates a certain kind of consciousness about where we are and the whole part of the phenomenon of, of you know, the, the age that we're living in is that everyone is kind of stripped of the ability to think outside the box because everyone's struggling so hard to, you know, stay afloat in 2022 Britain. So I just, I just wonder, you know, for example, I, w- I would think that the next generation of horror films would be about cancelling the future, like what happens when the future is cancelled. But I don't think we're there yet in terms of like a public consciousness about how bad conditions are as an era. Well, I mean, if we if we expand it beyond beyond horror films, I mean, one of the big tropes at the moment are like multiple, you know, multiple universe films. Do you know what I mean? Is that film everything everywhere all at once and all these sorts of stuff and marvel films are all about that these multiple universes but i think that whole multi that multiverse trope in fiction is is does relate doesn't it because it's about if only there was another universe that we could go to a fresh universe it's about the sense of a future we want we all wanted having been denied us yeah 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 totally totally yeah so it was that then there's the, the sort of like post apocalyptic sort of stuff 
But then, you know, Get Out and the rest of Jordan Peele's films, such as Us and Nope is the most recent one. Like They're all post-BLM movies, basically. And it's post that version of we're having to having to now sort of incorporate, you know, um, new audiences or, or new voices, basically, who are, who bring a different sort of perspective on what the horrors of the time are. And like that goes into this other sort of attempt to to sort of like reverse the sort of horror tropes around around things like race. Although us is much more about class, I think, actually, because it's about like, the hidden abode of, of production sort of thing. One of the reasons why post-apocalyptic imagery is so prevalent in a lot of contemporary uh, screen fiction, I mean, it's not a new thing. It's been around since the 70s when the, the fear of not only nuclear war, as we often say, but actually the fear of ecological devastation was already coming into people's minds. Uh, and I think one of the reasons is, you know, I mean, one of the features of horror, and it's consistent with the way we've been talking about it, and consistent with the psychoanalytic way of talking about it, is there is a there is a blurry line between fantasy and genuine fears. I mean, in, you know, there is this term in psychoanalysis, the paranoid fantasy. You know, you you Im- and and this is in, important for understanding a lot of conspiracy theory. Like you believe something to be true. Uh, you believe it to be true, even though it's horrible, because but, but that somehow believing that horrible thing to be true gives you a way of mastering it or feeling like you understand it or getting to grips with it in a way which you couldn't do otherwise. And if you and not being able to is worse than believing some horrible thing about it. For me, post-apocalyptic imagery and apocalyptic imagery is so popular in contemporary culture, partly because you know, it's a part of contemporary discourse around the ecological crisis, this fantasy that I think is a, a fantasy, that where we're heading is like the total breakdown of capitalist civilization. So we're going to be living in Mad Max or, you know, sixth century Britain or something like that, then where the, all the institutions are broken down. And I think that is just, I've said this before, I think when we had the XR episode, I mean, to me, that is basically a displacement because people don't want to face up to what is the real horror of where we are currently headed, which is not London underwater. Because they'll they'll put up they'll figure out some way to stop London getting underwater. What well, you know, the real horror of where we're heading is just mass death across um, the equatorial regions of the world, across you know the southern hemisphere, across you know, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, in southern Asia, and us just sitting there like watching it on screens, like being told we can't do anything about it. That is where we are directly heading. It's literally what is happening. If you look at what's happened in Pakistan this year and how little has been taught, it's been talked about in British media, that is literally what's happening. And for me, the idea that oh, well, our own civilizations are about to collapse is a classic example of that paranoid fantasy. And it is a displacement in a way. It's a way of allowing ourselves to experience a certain kind of affective displeasure, imagining a possible scenario. But it is a way of looking away from the, the actual, the real horror of our inability to prevent like an, uh, the, the greatest moral catastrophe in the history of humanity. I think that that works actually about why we might see the re-emergence of some of these monsters from the colonial era, if you want, like zombies, etc. That uh, TV series, The Walking Dead, you know, it's a Western, basically. It's a Western in which you, the, the world is de- depopulated. You know, Westerns are about, you know, a depopulating, like a genocidal depopulation. Both Westerns, I say, and post-apocalyptic uh, stories, they are fantasies about the simplification of social life, yeah. is always my take on them. That, that by some event, either going out to the West or civilization collapsing 
puts us in a situation where suddenly social life has been massively reduced in its complexity because mm. a lot of it has been destroyed. And, and one of the big problems that we've got in like the 21st century is social life has become so complex that lots of people just can't get to grips with it. They can't cognitively map it. They can't understand it. They don't know how to act effectively as democratic subjects in, in such a complex situation. So this fantasy of it all just being wiped away and being reduced to uh, feeding your family and fighting the zombies is something people really like on some level they want, I think. That's a nice point, actually. It, it sets up a nice parallel between the two dominant forms of of contemporary horror, right? Because if uh, apocalyptic horror is about the sort of fantasies about trying to simplify the world, uh, remove populations to simplify the world, then that sort of Jordan Peele and what we might call racecraftian fiction goes the opposite way. It's about complexifying the world, adding new voices, basically adding new voices and, uh, you know, incorporating the fears of, you know, young black men into the field of horror. The acid side is the the, the side which tries to complexify society and uh, express life to its fullest. This is acid. Man. 